your eyes to the skies. It's time for Spaced Out on 95PFM, thanks to the Stardome Observatory and Planetarium. Kia ora, Josh from the Stardome. You there, mate? Hey, how's it going? It's good. It's good. Now, uh, on this afternoon's edition of Spaced Out, we, uh, we're heading to the deep space and uh, we're, yeah. going, we're going a long way back into our, our history of space exploration. Uh, we're chatting about Voyager 2. Uh, for listeners out there, Voyager 2 was launched into the cosmos in 1977 and has been traveling. It's now out, it's out of our solar system, correct? Mm, yes, yeah, pretty much. So it's gone past Pluto. It's out there in yep. aka what is called deep space. Yes, or in, interstellar space is a nice word for it. Does it start going faster once it goes past Pluto, or is it just at a static speed? Uh, it's pretty static. It actually slows down because it does lose you know, a little bit of momentum over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it, it's achieved what you call escape velocity, so that means it's not bound to the sun, mm-hmm. um, and it will just basically continue travelling through space. Does it stay um, in a straight line, or does it get affected by the, the gravity of things around it? I mean, it's in a pretty straight line now because once it left, you know, those last planets, Neptune, basically, the trajectory after Neptune has basically stayed in that kind of straight position. Mm. Um, and it, there's really nothing to alter that course unless it is, you know, it does pass by something, you know, fairly large that could mm. slightly alter its orbit or a path in space. Um, but yeah, there, there's really not a lot out there, so it's, it's on a pretty straight path. So the general gist of things is we've been able to send it messages uh, and tell yeah. it, give yeah. it instructions. But, I mean, this is a piece of equipment from the 70s. The, mm. the last information that we've sent it has sent it slightly off course? or Yeah, but basically we don't have all the details from NASA, but basically you know, they're still in regular contact with Voyager. Um, but they sent a command to that spacecraft, which isn't unusual. Um, but for some reason that command kind of, the spacecraft is slightly tilted. Uh, path and it basically turns the antenna about two degrees away from the Earth. Um, and because of that, basically kind of severed the lines of communication because the antenna needs to be pointing at the Earth, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was communication for a few days and they uh, kind of weren't sure what to do. Um, but they, they did actually end up getting control of it again. They kind of had this thing called a shout command where they uh, broadcast a really powerful radio signal, hoping that it would hear it. Um, and it did, and it reorientated itself. Oh, wow. It actually They've actually yeah. managed to sort it out. That's so yeah, I mean, crazy. It was, it's like sending information to a tape deck or something like that. It must be just so old and crazy. Oh, it, it's an amazing piece of technology. You know, this is from 1977. So, um, And also, not just the old technology, because, you know, radio still works the same as it does back then. Yeah. Um, but it's also just the distance. You know, the, the spacecraft is you know, 20 billion kilometres away. Is it the furthest Um, thing in space that we've managed to launch? uh, It's close. That would be Voyager 1, which is the sibling probe. Yep. So there's Voyager 1 and 2, both very far away. Are they still going? Is Voyager 1 going? Yep, also still going too. So they're both still active, which in itself is, you know, an amazing feat. Um, But, yeah, luckily we've, you know, regained connection with it and it's still working and it's, it's fine out there. What? information can something from 1977 send back to earth yeah i mean it's not a lot i mean once it left the solar system um you know they basically they slowly are turning off a lot of the science instruments because Mm. you know they weren't designed to work that far out or they want to conserve power um but one of the few things 
like science data that we do get from them is basically um, kind of where their solar system ended. So there's this kind of uh, like a solar bubble of energy that kind of surrounds our solar system, and these two spacecraft have left that, so we now consider that interstellar space. Mm. Um, and we, we initially didn't know where that was, so these are some of the only spacecraft that actually can tell us you know, what is an interstellar space? You know, what's the density? What's the, you know, the temperature, the radiation? What's the environment like out there? Um, and incredibly, they, they still do that for us. What is the environment out there? Uh, very, very inhospitable. It's very cold. There's a lot of cosmic rays. Uh, it's, it's just not a nice place at all. Um, and you're kind of, yeah, the, these spacecraft, they get pummeled by a lot of cosmic rays, mm. which um, our sun kind of protects us, that crisis bubble that's, um, blocks a lot of these high-energy particles, whereas, um, yeah, once they lift that kind of protective bubble of the sun, they get pummeled by these um, particles, which, you know, we didn't know where that started or where that ended. So it's, it's taught us a lot, about not just the sun, but how other stars would also work in that same way. So we, d- we actually um, don't know what sort of energy is happening in space? Like... Uh, yeah, th- there, there are some things in space, like we have these really high-energy particles, um, which come from all directions, and we don't actually know what causes them, where they come from. Oh, there's just the another high-energy particle cruising past. What's Literally, it going to yeah, do? And, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and they, these are particles, they're called cosmic rays, that, you know, it can rip DNA apart. So that's one of those things that makes space, you know, so How do you protect against this if, we, if we're planning to go in, like, deep space? What do we do? Do we, like, just build yeah, I mean, a lead spaceship? A rule of thumb is kind of, I mean, there isn't really a lot of things that can protect from oh. some of these um, particles. You know, we have an atmosphere which protects us, but that's why we've, you know, we built spacecraft for mm. decades is because they can withstand these things, whereas okay. humans, you know, just would be terrible. Yeah. All right. Okay. On to the next story, Josh. We're talking power. We NASA has awarded a contract for, um, well, to Lockheed Martin to make a new propulsion system to get us to Mars a bit faster. Yeah, this is, um, I think this would be, you know, this is a very long, early stage for development, um, but in the long term, I think, this has been a goal of NASA's for a really long time, is to develop nuclear propulsion in space. Um, You know, it's kind of the holy grail of space exploration because it allows you to travel um, a lot faster so you can get places really quickly. Is this like an Event Horizon type thing where we open one (laughs) hole of thing and then another hole? Well, I think it would make a good movie. Okay. Um, <laughs> which is, is a great movie, by the way. Um, terrifying. Yeah, but of course, most, you know, is that the most terrifying? What is the most terrifying space movie, Josh? The most terrifying space movie? It's got to be Event Horizon. Uh, yeah, I, it's up there, absolutely. Um, I th- yeah, and I, th- I think it would be, actually. Those flashback scenes, terrifying. What's the other Josh. one about the little alien thing that gets bigger and bigger and then it comes back to Earth and... Of a new one? Yeah, new one. That's, pre- that's uh, pretty scary. That, yeah, the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, I think, was yeah, in that one. Yeah, I remember that one. Yep. No, nowhere as nowhere as near scary as Event Horizon. Though. Okay, yeah. So, Event Horizon, most scary space movie of all time. Yeah, don't quote me on that. Okay. Could be another one. All right, okay. Back to this propulsion system. Yes, we are looking to get places faster. How do we do it? Uh, Lockheed yeah, Martin. Yeah, it's just been a goal of now basically wanted to do this in the 60s and they've done some tests um but you know they pulled their resources into the apollo program to the space station space shuttle so they never actually developed it themselves and they've kind of shelved these plans um but you know now with you know the eventual plans to get you know people to mars um, one of the biggest things of going to mars is not mars itself it's actually the journey there and back which Mm. is you know nine months 
Um, and the worst thing about space is actually how much time you're spending in space. So NASA would, you know, love to cut that journey from nine months um, significantly. And with nuclear, nuclear propulsion, um, you know, we think we could do the journey in about 50 to 100 days. Um, so it's so much shorter. It means that, you know, the astronauts that go there are not going to be uh, just much more healthy in general, essentially. Mm. Um, and it would just mean that we can not just send people to Mars, but that means that we can explore things that are really far away much, much quicker, which is you know, a big goal of NASA's. Is it safe to test this sort of technology on planet Earth when you're mucking around with new bits of science and more powerful forms of propulsion? Is there the, the potential for them to just like blow up a country if they're... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, these are small amounts of um, so uranium is the fuel that they use. Um, and it is a really small amount of uranium, and they will be quite small-scale tests. And, mm. you know, eventually they will actually have to send these things into space. Um, but, yeah, just kind of reading from the framework of how they want to do it, you know, there are obviously so many fail-safes with nuclear systems because nowadays, you know, nuclear meltdowns is a really big, um, you know, worry of people, it's especially in New Zealand, you know. Mm. Um so there is a lot of fail-safes for that technology, but it's, again, it is that risk of it is an experimental thing, and we haven't done this before. Um, and you know, often the best way of learning something is actually failing and <laughs> having an explosion of some sort. Not that I for that to happen, um, but yeah, it, it, it's an experimental technology. So mm. I think it'll be interesting to see where this goes in the future. Okay. Now everyone's favorite helicopter has flown again. Ingenuity <laughs> it kind of crapped out for a second on Mars, but it's back in action. Yeah, the Ingenuity, it's still flying. Um, it had a few months of not flying, um, not because anything was wrong with it, but because the rover actually couldn't see it, so it couldn't talk to it. Um, but yeah, the, the rover's gotten close to it again, and it attempted a flight a few weeks ago. Um, and for some reason, NASA doesn't know why, but basically the helicopter just kind of aborted its flight. Mid-flight, it basically just stopped, and it automatically landed, so it has these systems to, mm. if it detects something wrong, it'll just land wherever it is. Yeah. Um, they don't know why, basically, but it's, you know, still impressive that it is working, you know, two and a bit years after it was, you know, put there. How many flights, uh, it, how many flights was it? It was only originally supposed to do, like, a couple of flights, right? They just were like, oh, yeah, maybe five. Yeah, five. Yeah, five flights, and it's now on its fifty-third flight. So, a massive achievement, regardless. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the latest flight, it, it's now flying again. So they've done another flight, and it was fine. Um, but it was a cool flight because it took another photo. You know, it was flying. You can actually see the rover in the background. Mm. Um, you can see perseverance from the distance, which is very cool. If you see the rover, if you head to NASA's website and just Ingenuity Mars helicopter flies again. Josh is right. It is a great photo. It actually looks like it could have been taken on the desert road somewhere in the central <laughs> North Island. Yeah, just down by the mountain. <laughs> How's that? Real pay. Who in the background down there? <laughs> nah, it's, man, it's so cool. It, yeah, it's really cool. I think it, it almost looks like a little cartoon. You see, like, the rover in the distance. And it, you don't really get an idea of scale when you see mm. the rover, but, you know, it's that, that, that's the size of a car, that rover, so... Now, okay, Josh, in, in this photo, there's, it looks like there's either, I don't know, the landscape has this, I don't know, how would I describe it? it? It does look like there's water tracks and wind and the elements are at play here on Mars. What do you see when you look at this photo as far as the ground of Mars? Yeah, I mean, you kind of see two things. The first is you see that evidence of, like, water erosion. So that's something we've known for a while now. And, you know, you see large-scale photos, especially from the air, 
um, you know, you can literally see where water was flying, where mm. channels were carved in the ground. Yes. Um, you know, that water today doesn't exist because, you know, the atmosphere is too thin. Mm. Um, but on top of that now, you know, Mars still has a lot of Earth-like weather. So it's, it's a very windy planet. There's a lot of wind-driven erosions. Um, you get those really cool-looking sand dunes, these kind of streaks of dark sand. Um, I always think it's kind of like the sands, like here in the West Coast, like mm. the really dark kind of black sand that we mm. have. Um, Mars has a really similar... Uh, look in that sense but yeah I mean there's when you see Mars from the air it just gives you a different perspective than you know the rovers being on the ground um, and I think that's why it's so important to have kind of two perspectives on Mars yeah, you know on sure. the air and on the ground yeah it's so very awesome. interesting to see that's awesome now Josh what's happening at the Stardome in the next couple of weeks uh, well we have our next sci-fi film which is tomorrow actually that's on Wednesday uh, which is the the original Planet of the Apes of the 1960 eight one i think wow um so yeah i'm actually i might pop along to that i have only seen it once and i'll have to see it again and we have our next i think it's district nine which is also this month oh, yeah. um, also yeah, we've got film. tickets for those um and yeah we've got our final shows for uh the one i talked about last time which is our winter show um and then we'll be very soon we'll be heading into spring finally wow it's good well it's come around pretty quickly in my yeah <laughs> All right. Hey, Josh, um, from the Sardom, thank you very much. We'll look forward to speaking with you in a fortnight's time, mate. All right. Speak to you then. Hey. Control, we are docked. That was spaced out on 95 BFM, thanks to the Stardome Observatory and Planetarium.